0: The last several weeks, we've been doing some pretty heavy lifting, I think, some theological uh, work as we have been exploring one of the deepest and most important and most satisfying themes in all of the Bible. We've been thinking and talking about the new covenant. And we've especially been asking what is new about the new covenant? How is it new? What is different? We've been focusing on the benefits of the new covenant versus the old covenant. And so far, we've made two conclusions. It's taken two weeks to do this, and we're going to add a third conclusion to it tonight. But if you've missed, or if, uh, if you're like me and forget you know, what, you had, what you thought about this morning, right, it's, good, it's good to remember. We've made two conclusions. The new covenant is better because in the new covenant, number one, we get a new heart. We get a new heart. God takes out our hearts of stone, and if we have faith in Jesus Christ, saving faith, He replaces them with hearts of flesh. That is a heart that desires to worship and obey God. We've also seen that in the new covenant, we get new life that we are regenerated, that unlike in the old covenant, where people were physically born into the community of God, in the new covenant, you must be spiritually born into the community of God. That is, you must be born again. You must be a son of God. To be a son of God, a son of God is born not of the flesh, but of the Spirit must be filled with the Spirit. So tonight we're going to add a third benefit. We've talked about a new heart, we've talked about new life, and tonight we're going to talk about a new priest or a new mediator. And this represents a big change in how God's people relate to God. Now, you may have noticed, uh, I'm, I'm in my mid-30s, and I'm noticing, I've always kind of watched the generations above me and thought about how they seem resistant to change, and I'm slowly realizing that at some point, I'm becoming, you know, a little bit resistant to, to change. And it's funny to, it's funny to think about how this works, right? In general, most of the time, we don't really like change, right? We, we tend to like what we already know. We're used to it. It's safe. It makes sense most of the time. But there's an exception. Upgrades, right? Change and upgrade, like those aren't even the same thing, it seems like. We love upgrades. We love when something that is broken gets fixed, right? No matter what the problem is, uh, if it's getting fixed, we're happy to see that change, right? I mean, would anyone here have trouble adjusting to a new car, right? An upgraded car. Uh, Probably, probably not. The trick is you have to be convinced that the new thing is better. You have to be convinced that it's an upgrade. No one complains about an upgrade if they're convinced that it's an upgrade. And that's the trick. And sometimes we struggle to see how the new way would be better than the old way. Consider a couple of funny examples throughout history. Daryl Zanuck, the uh, executive of the 20th Century Fox, 20th Century Fox said this, television won't be able to hold on to any market it captures after the first six months. People will soon get tired of staring at a plywood box every night. Daryl Zanuck, 1946. Consider this, (laughs) quote, The horse is here to stay, but the automobile is only a novelty, a fad. Said president of the Michigan Savings Bank, advising Henry Ford's lawyer not to invest in Ford Motor Company, 1903. Let's make fun of the Brits, right? Sir William Priest, the chief engineer of the British Post Office, said this, The Americans may have a need of a telephone, but we do not. We have plenty of messenger boys. <laughs> Change. Change. Well, tonight we are continuing our study in the new covenant, asking what is new about the new covenant. And maybe the key thing to remember is that the new covenant is better. Now, I realize that none of us have ever lived under the old covenant, so it is difficult for us to appreciate this, I think. The new covenant is what we have known. But in order to understand the thrust of the Bible, and in order to understand the glory of Christ, because this is his work, we need to understand what is new and how it is better. That word better, I chose because the author of Hebrews liked it a lot, right? And have you read Hebrews recently? He says better multiple times. And most of the time, he's referring to how the new covenant is better than the old covenant. Just some samples. I don't want you flipping around. Just listen. Hebrews 7 says, This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Or in chapter 8 where it says, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant that he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. And so that's what we're going to focus on tonight. In the same way that television is better than plywood, agreed, or that the Ford Mustang Cobra is better than a Mustang, like a horse, or in the same way that telephones are better than British errand boys, we'll see that the sacrifice of Jesus is better than the sacrifice of bulls and goats. Now you probably already know that. I can just look around this room and tell you you already know that. But I still believe that God intends to teach us and instruct us to see Jesus as better. So that's our goal tonight. And I'm going to try to keep it simple, not get too bogged down, but we've got a little work to do. So let's look down at Jeremiah chapter 31. I'm actually going to have you, uh, I'm going to begin reading in a perplexing part of the passage. It's one of the parts that's often skipped starting in verse 29, and I'll read down to 34, but we're going to focus most of our attention on the end of verse 34. Would you read with me? In those days, they shall no longer say, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge, but everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of these to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these glorious promises. And I pray that right now, that whatever familiarity we have with this text or whatever knowledge we think we already have about the subject, Lord, that you would not let it give us calloused ears or calloused hearts. Open our hearts to receive the word that you have for us tonight, and let Christ be magnified among us. We praise you for the complete forgiveness that is available in Jesus Christ. Help us see it and love it, we pray. Amen. Well, before we take a look at verse 34, I want to direct your attention first to this sort of strange, sort of obscure uh, verse there in verse 29. It's, perhaps we can just call it the sour grape proverb, right? The sour grape proverb. This was a proverb. You see it there. The father, no longer will they say the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. But instead, everyone shall die for his iniquity. Each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. What in the world does that mean, right? Well, this was a proverb, right? So when it says, no longer shall they say, we're thinking that this is a proverb that goes around. I, I found myself, I was doing some sermon research and found myself distracted on a website today called Southern Sayings. I learned some new ones, right? My father-in-law is the king of these, right? It's confused as a termite in a yo-yo, right? And so I was good. I was doing some research so I could have something to say back to him. Um, and I'm thinking it probably wouldn't be best to say them right now. I'll just wait. Um, but this is a proverb. This was a saying, right, in, in Babylon. And it was widely circulated. And though it's strange to us, um, let's see if we can figure out what this means, right? It claims that as a father eats sour grapes, ever had a sour grape? They're so bad it's just not fair. You're so excited. You've got this cold, you got to refrigerate grapes. You got this cold, juicy, crisp grape and you put it in and it's sour, right? And what do you do? You make a face, right? You make a face. But in this proverb, who's, who eats the sour grape? The father and whose face puckers? The children, right? That's what it means set on edge, the children are puckering. Now that's not how things normally work. The other day, I think two nights ago, I had a bad green bean, which isn't often, but uh, I I pulled it out of the pot and I ate it before I was supposed to. And you know, I, I made a funny face and my kids laughed at me. Now they didn't make the funny face because they didn't eat the green bean. I did. I didn't even know green beans could get bad, but I found one, right? Uh, and and they, they, they laughed at me because of my face. But this proverb is referring to a, a, a dynamic that we need to understand. It's the spiritual dynamic of children who suffer for the parent's sin, Children who suffer for the sin of their parents. Now before you try to start applying this to like your generational issues. And like let's, let's hold off any of that, any of that application. And let's, let's stay high level and think about the old covenant. Okay. Um, but that's what it's saying. That children are. There's this dynamic of where children suffer for the sin of someone else. Their parents is what the proverb mentions. But it's broader than that. It's mediators. Right, Parents eat the sour grapes and the kids pucker. Now, there's biblical precedent for this. I heard this, uh, my wife and I were listening to this read last night in, in bed. We're, Exodus 34. Where it says, The Lord will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generations, right? We see this dynamic in the Old Testament. It can be perplexing, don't you think? That because of the sin of their parents, some children in Israel were born into the wilderness. Some were born into captivity. There were children who were born and they never experienced anything but Babylonian captivity. And it's because of whose sin? Their parents sin, right? But it's not limited to the parent child relationship. That's just the proverb. But it's illustrating something more broad, I believe. Because the same thing was true for priests or kings, right? We've seen this dynamic. We saw it a ton in Samuel. As it goes for the king, so it goes for the people. As it goes for the priests sometimes, so it goes for the people. If the king sin, the people suffer. If the priests sin, the people suffer. Think about David. Who suffered for David's sin? Well, his son was killed. His son died, right? Leaders would sin and the whole nation would suffer. In all of these cases, and now we're getting to the meaning here, the problem was the same. There were faulty mediators. Okay? In the proverb, the parent is the mediator there were faulty mediators and that's the principle that runs throughout the bible that one spiritual well-being is bound up in the quality of his mediator you catching you catching this one spiritual well-being is bound up in the quality of his mediator a bad mediator means a bad life a good mediator means a good life but notice what this text says right now that we've started to get our bearings on it that this dynamic of suffering under bad mediators is going to change no longer will they say this thing this proverb is going to be in abandoned. instead verse 30 says everyone shall die for his own iniquity each man who eats sour grapes his teeth shall be set on edge now okay this is tricky it it took me a long time to figure this out right uh, do you see how the proverb changed under the new covenant, right, it's looking ahead to the new covenant that people will not suffer because of faulty mediators. But look what's left. They're still guilty, right? They still have their own guilt. And so we can learn a few things from this. See if you track with me. This is the hardest thing we'll do tonight. See if you can track with me. Number one, we see that there's this principle of spiritual well-being that's bound up in the quality of our mediators. Number two, Israel had faulty mediators. We're going to see that clearly tonight. We also see, number three, that in the New Covenant, people will suffer for their own sin. Not the mediator sin, for their own sin. There's still a sin problem. But here's the big thing. The mediator problem will get fixed. The mediator problem will get fixed. So the question is, how? And who is he? Where is he? Because we want that mediator. So now we can look down to verse 34. We've been talking about this passage for several weeks. I'm going to skip lots because we've already covered it. And we're going to focus our attention on this last phrase. I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. What a marvelous promise. I hope, I'm thrilled that you're church people. I'm thrilled that we do this. But I hope that we've not heard these kind of words so much that they just roll over our heads like they don't mean anything. That's incredible. Iniquity that will be forgiven, sin that will be forgotten. That's good news. Iniquity will be forgiven and sin will be forgotten. That's a glorious reality and I want a part of that, right? But first, we got to think about the way guilt, iniquity, worked under the Old Covenant right? So let's do a little bit of review, right? We got we to gotta think about how guilt was dealt with, right? Because central to the Old Covenant, the Old Testament system, was this concept of mediator, right? You probably know this, particularly priests who would stand between a person, a normal guy like me, and God. They'd stand in the middle, they'd mediate, they would particularly offer sacrifices for sins. They had this incredibly dangerous responsibility of going into the presence of the Lord on behalf of sinful people. Now that's that doesn't sound like something that you'd want to sign up for, right? That sounds dangerous. If you understand anything about the glory of God and the wrath of God and the seriousness of sin, that's not something that sounds to appealing but what they would do is they would represent the people they would bear the guilt they would take on the guilt of the people and then they would go into the presence of the Lord and they would offer blood sacrifices to atone for that sin and the blood of the animal the blood represents the life or therefore the death the spilling of the life which would temporarily pacify the wrath of God for some particular sin We can't go into this too much tonight, but I'm hoping this is ringing some bells for you. And the way this would work is that in the Old Covenant, when the right mediator would provide a sacrifice, a sin could be forgiven. All right? When the right mediator would provide the right sacrifice, a sin would be forgiven. It's... An elaborate but somewhat comprehensive system, but one way you can see this is that in the Day of Atonement. It's one one snapshot. Where once a year the priests would offer sacrifices to cleanse sin, but here's what they did it for. It was for the entire past year, but guess who they had to do the sacrifice for? They would have to do the sins of the people and who? The sins of themselves. They would have to offer sacrifices for their own sins and for the sins of the people. Do you see the problem? (laughs) Right? There's a couple problems here. First of all, uh, this is a never-ending system. When does it end? When sin ends? Well, when's that going to happen? That's not going to happen in this system, right? It goes on and on. The sacrifices brought, we could say, partial forgiveness, but they couldn't make the sinners perfect. You have a sacrifice for sin, and what happens? You're back the next day, or in my case, the next minute, right? Don't look at me like you think I'm crazy. You know, you're, you know this, you too, right? It, it would go on and on. They had to, the sacrifices had to be offered again and again. I'm going to quote lots from Hebrews tonight, but one place it says, Never, by the same sacrifices are, that are continually offered every year, never are they able to make perfect those who draw near." so the sacrifices there's a sense of where they didn't work and that they didn't fix the sin problem they didn't perfect the people people kept sinning sacrifices kept dying that's a problem problem number 2 faulty mediators faulty mediators there were lots of problems with the mediators particularly the priests and the kings right the main one they were sinful They, like the people, were sinful. So they had to offer sacrifices for themselves. And since they were sinners, guess what the other problem was? They kept dying. That is a pesky problem, isn't it? The the priests, the mediators, called by God to, to help mediate relationship with God and man, they kept succumbing to the curse of sin, death. And so again and again, it is a system of death. Sometimes God killed them. You Remember the story of Nadab and Abihu? They offered strange fire before the Lord. God killed them. Sometimes uh, he killed them. But all of them eventually died with maybe one exception. We'll talk about that later. The third problem, another big problem, was that under the Old Covenant, these faulty mediators provided very, 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 let's keep going, very, very limited access to God, didn't they? They provided very limited access to God. The normal members of the community, they had no access to God. They couldn't wander into the Holy of Holies. That's instant death. Right? It didn't work like that. Even the priest, and only some of them, had access to God once a year. And that was a life-threatening arrangement. If you sold insurance in Israel, you did not sell life insurance to the priest going into the Holy of Holies. You sold him a rope and a bell because he may die and they've got to get the body out. Right? It's dangerous. Just think of this arrangement. Just think, have, you, have you thought about this much? One of the big things I hope you've learned about covenants, we've been talking about them for six months or something, right? One of the things I hope you've learned about covenants is the whole point of covenant is relationship. Relationship between God and man. The whole point is to restore a relationship that was broken by sin. And if this is the solution, this is a really limited solution right? That doesn't sound like a lot of intimacy. And this leads us to why the new covenant is so much better. When verse 34 promises, there's a day coming when I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. That is indicating a change. But how does this happen? Well, the answer is through the work of Jesus Christ. There's no way that we could exhaust or even look at the work of Christ in detail. But I want to try to highlight a couple of ways that the work of Jesus enables a better new covenant. The way that his work enables a better covenant. We could call it better benefits. If you like bees. I'm terrible at alliteration, but look, there's one, right? Better benefits. There's so many ways that the... New Testament particularly Hebrews shows that the sacrifice of Jesus is better and that the priesthood of Jesus is better and the kingship of Jesus is better. Jesus is better than all that took place in the Old Testament. In fact that's what the that's what Hebrews is about. It tells us through Jesus we have a better hope through which we draw near to God. What a, this, that's Hebrews seven nineteen. What incredible! If we're thinking about covenant and restor- restored relationship, that sounds good. Through Jesus, we have a better hope through which we draw near to God. Or what about Hebrews eight six? Through Jesus, God has mediated a better covenant because it was established on better promises. So I'd like to offer you four ways that the work of Jesus is better or superior than the work of the Old Covenant. Four better benefits. And they all center around Jesus being a high priest. The first one is this. Jesus entered into the very presence of God. Right? This is different from the Old Covenant. Listen as I read from Hebrews 9. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come... Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of creation, Christ entered once for all into the holy places. Did you catch that? Christ went into a better tent. That is, he didn't approach God in a temple or a tabernacle or a tent that was built with hands, the hands of sinners. They probably sinned while they were building it. You ever thought of that? Right, that's probably what they were doing. If, we, if, if I know anything about people, I'm sure that's what they were doing. Right? He didn't approach God in the tent of meeting. He entered himself into the very presence of God. That's what that text means. He, Jesus came from the Father, he came from the presence of the Father, where he had enjoyed perfect relationship with him from all eternity past. He came from him, and then when he ascended into heaven, where did he go? He returned to the right hand of the Father, where he continues that same glorious relationship. Jesus has access to God, and so when Jesus went to make a sacrifice, that's where he went, to the very presence of of God. Hebrews 9 verse 12 also tells us the second thing, a second way that it's a better benefit. Jesus entered by his very own blood. Let me read nine twelve again. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood and goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Hebrews goes on to say in chapter 10, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Jesus entered by the means of his own blood. I, I, I don't have a good way to describe how vast this difference is. I mean, you've seen a cow, right? We're, we're comparing the blood of a cow or goat, to the blood of Christ. I I don't, I don't have words to put this, but the difference is vast. Jesus entered on the basis of a more precious sacrifice, more costly sacrifice. His blood is more precious. The blood of bulls and goats is not precious. The blood of bulls and goats is not priceless. How much better is Christ's sacrifice? His blood signifies that Jesus is the better mediator who accomplishes complete forgiveness of sins. This is why, have you ever wondered at the Lord's Supper, we use this language? Jesus, at the Last Supper, as he instituted uh, the the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper um, that that we still observe today, he referenced this very idea. This is why he said he took the cup... The cup of the Passover. And he said, and likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Okay, now if you're tracking on the, what's so great about new covenants, this should be ringing some bells. What is new about it and what is, the, what is the connection with the blood? Well, of course, the cup that is being poured out, that is referring to the wrath of God. That's how God's wrath is often pictured in the Old Testament. It is a a steaming cauldron of disgusting fury that's poured out upon sinners in judgment. But in the New Covenant, God's wrath is not poured out on me. It's poured out on Christ. Because the blood of Jesus, not a bull or a goat, because the blood of Jesus was spilled, the cup of God's wrath was satisfied. The cup of God's wrath is now empty. For on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. If you were to look into that cup, you could not find a drop of God's wrath. Christian, if you are in Jesus Christ, there is no wrath that remains. You could not put your finger in and feel any moisture. It has completely been poured out on Jesus Christ. He drank the cup, which leads us to a third and better benefit. Jesus is able to completely save. When Jesus saves, he saves completely. Let me quote a variety of texts for you, all from Hebrews, I think. Consequently, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him or another. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting him. Or Hebrews 10, 18, where there is forgiveness of these, there's no longer any offering for sin. No more offering for sin. Friends, my goodness, herein lies the glory of the new covenant. The new covenant is based not on the blood of a bull, but on the blood of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. It's based on his sacrifice. And you know what, here's, I've got a lot to learn about Jesus, but you know one of the things I've learned? You know what my son Roman has learned? Jesus is really good at stuff. Right? We, I've told you this, we do this all the time in my house. Roman, can you walk on water? No. Roman, can you calm the storm? I think the other day he said yes. Okay, forget Roman. Karis, right? <laughs> like, his resume. Jesus is really good at the stuff he does. And when he sets out to atone for the sins of the world, do you know what he does? He atones for the sins of the world. And he does it effectively and completely The sacrifice that he offered once for all enables him to save completely. And I love that phrase, even those to the uttermost. In other words, there is no sinner that has trumped the saving work of Jesus Christ. There's no one too far. There's no sin too bad. Satan does not win. Do you see? On the cross of Jesus Christ, Jesus atoned completely For those sins of those who would place their faith in him. Which brings us to a final better benefit. The sacrifice of Jesus is decisive. It's decisive. Listen, here's what I mean. For by a single offering, Jesus has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, hear your name in this verse. For by a single offering, Jesus has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Did you hear it? It was by a single offering. Not annual, not repeated, by a single offering. One of my favorite songs is, Though our sins they are many, his mercy is more. Christ has more mercy than you have sin. And that's that's really hard to believe as you rack up sin. I hope that you have a relationship with God and have a sensitivity to the Spirit that you see sin in your life. I hope that that there are ways where you are convicted by the Spirit so that you are startled to discover new sinfulness that you did not know was there. Have you had that experience? You might have been walking with Jesus for 30 years and all of a sudden you've come into some new awareness that you're not as good as you thought you were the work of God's Spirit. His sin, our sin, is great, but his mercy is more. And it only took one single offering. And it only took one offering because the sacrifice was so valuable, the blood of Jesus Christ. I hope that you can see how the new covenant is better and the ways that it changes our life. Friends, if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ... If you have been born again, and if you have a new heart, you have, hear me friends, total forgiveness. Total forgiveness. God has washed you clean in the blood of the Son. He's taken all of your evil deeds, and he's placed them upon Christ so that they could be removed forever. And Jesus has suffered completely for your sin. You may not even know about your sin yet, but Jesus has already suffered for it. He suffered for your apathy and your greed. He suffered for your lust and your self-love. He suffered for your bitterness and your vain glory in such a way that no wrath remains. None. On your worst day, Christian, God delights in you. There is no ill will from the Father left. None. His discipline, even his discipline, is love and favor. None. He's no longer angry. But rather, he delights in you as much as he delights in his Son. God will get angry with you when he gets angry with Jesus. Because you are in him if you have faith in Jesus Christ. That's incredible. What an incredible thing to believe. There may be times, if you're like me, still struggling with sin where you are tempted to believe or to think that you've blown it, that your conscience condemns you, that you've fallen into sin and Satan is effectively persuading you, oh, there's no way God could love you. He might send you to heaven, but he doesn't like you. You ever felt that? times where you're prone to forget the extent of Christ's atoning work. You see, the problem is we don't view Jesus highly enough. And if we view Jesus highly enough, our sin would always drive us to Jesus in awe and amazement that he is such an effective Savior. We'd be amazed and horrified that we are great sinners. But we would be more excited and more delighted that he is a great, greatest, or as Addy says, more greater, more greater Savior. Because he is. If you're prone to forget the extent of Christ's atoning sacrifice, then you need to compare the old covenant to the new covenant. Because you can see it more clearly. In this way, you can apply the gospel to every single particular sin. I think this is where a lot of Christians struggle. We're okay with applying the gospel to like our big sin problem, but when it comes to our particular sin problem, like the thing that I did today, that's where we struggle, right? If we actually see the sin. But God calls us to apply the gospel to even our particular sins. You can say this sin, you can name it and you can confess it to other people. You can say this very sin has been forgiven by Jesus Christ. Can you believe it? There's no way that he's as good as I realize he is. There's no way. But it's true. The gospel is the greatest story. It is the best news you could ever hear. You can say, This sin, even this sin, even this sin that I've committed 5,000 times before, that I've tried to repent of last night, even this sin is forgiven in Jesus Christ. See, sometimes in our pride, our sin surprises us. It might even devastate us. But there's no need for that. Not if you have a better sacrifice, not if you have complete forgiveness. Even when you're shocked or offended. When you realize that you're really bad. That you're worse than you thought. Or if someone else tells you that you're worse than you thought. You ever had that? That mild criticism and you're like, I cannot believe that she said that to me. See, the Christian that understands what Jesus has said on the cross. About how bad my sin is. How in the world am I going to be offended by your rebuke or your criticism? You see, we don't get this as we should, and we need this truth, that we incredibly can stand before God with a clean conscience. Not because we don't sin, that's not true, but because we have a Savior. Total forgiveness, clean consciences, which means that we have access to God. In the same way that Jesus walked into the presence of God, you and I have access, which is why the best known verse in Hebrews is best known for good reason. So let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Friends, that confidence is not confidence that you're good. It's not confidence that you've got it together. The confidence is that you're so pitifully needy and you can be there anyway. It's confidence to draw near to God as a sinner. You don't have to wait till you get your life cleaned up. You don't have to wait till you make a certain uh, amount of progress in your sin struggle. You don't have to be strong. Christ is all those things for you if you're in Christ. So sinners, you can run to God, and you can go boldly, because if you're in Christ, you have an all-access pass. What a glory this is. May God apply it to our timid hearts that we might believe these truths. Father, help us as we go to believe the incredible truths that we've heard, and may Christ receive all the glory, for he is the lamb who was slain, and we cannot wait to see him with our very eyes, as we're with you in your presence. We ask this in your name. Amen. You dismiss, church. Go in peace.